look at any society, we begin by asking some questions of basic human interest. What was life like for them? What did the average person do? How'd they make a living? What dangers did they face? And so on. But after a while, when we begin to get a clearer picture of any civilization, we inevitably ask the question, what did they think of themselves? Like, what did the Vikings think when they were sailing to North America? What did the Europeans think when Rome fell and barbarians swept across the land? And, if you were sitting in the richest city on earth, at the center of the largest empire ever seen, what did you think of your place in history? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Yes, Islam had a very definite vision of itself as the final word, the final chapter. But Muslims, and particularly Muslim rulers, also had a very keen interest in history. The study of why empires rose and fell, of why their predecessors in other civilizations succeeded and failed. So the Muslim empire not only made history, it advanced the study of history tremendously. And that's our subject today, so please stay tuned. study of history in Islam is really as old as Islam itself. It begins with the earliest attempts to write a biography of the Prophet Muhammad after his death, because this was incredibly important, collecting the stories about him, what we knew, and using that as a model. Well, the story of someone's life is called a sirah, and hundreds of sirat have been written on the Prophet Muhammad. These were made from collected reports by many different companions, and so it was necessary to evaluate the various sources. From this came something called Ilm al-Rijal, which literally means the science of men, but we usually call it the science of narration, because it involves evaluating the sources and transmitters of oral reports. How reliable were they? How many other people quoted them? What contact did they have with the people at the time? And so on. And we put this together to make a judgment about how reliable certain reports are compared to others. Now this is going to become hugely important for a civilization that develops essentially from an oral culture. The Muslim civilization is going to develop some of the greatest libraries from some of the most prolific authors in history up to that time, but they came largely from an oral tradition. Well, until much later in time, when other methods would become available of checking historical claims, the collection and evaluation of transmitted oral accounts was the basis of, of Islamic history and also the development of religious doctrines. Well, after the Prophet Muhammad, this sort of study expanded to include biographies of other important Muslim figures, like the early caliphs, the companions of the Prophet, and so on. One of the early subjects that was very popular was 
biographies of Ali ibn Abi Talib for obvious reasons. As we know, he was the origin figure of the line of Shiite imams, and what he actually said or did and did not do, and what was said about him, was extremely important for the claims of the people who would become the Sunnis and the Shias. And also, Ali's son, the Imam Hussein, who was martyred at the Battle of Karbala, which really started the Sunni-Shia split in earnest, also became a very popular subject of biographies. Another popular subject was what was called al-Maghazi, which were the stories of the Muslim conquest. But they also went way back in time and wrote histories of the prophets. So we talked about the development of Hadith in an earlier episode. And it's out of this work that the collection and study of Hadith really begins. But the study of history proceeds on the same path and expands out rapidly. They're essentially doing the same thing. They're collecting these oral reports, they're evaluating them, they're documenting how we got these reports and letting them stand against each other, whether it be on religious doctrines or practices, what the companions did, what the prophet did, or for establishing history. And the two subjects really weren't very clearly divided at the time. So one of the earliest historians we talk about is Ibn Ishaq, who was born about 70 years after the death of the Prophet, but he wrote one of the oldest surviving biographies of the Prophet and also an extensive history of the conquests. Now this man was a grandson of a Christian who was taken prisoner in the conquest of Kufa in Iraq, but who converted to Islam and was thus freed. Well, Ibn Ishaq was born in Medina, studied in Alexandria, and moved to Baghdad at the time that the new Abbasid Caliph was establishing a capital there. But he already had a strong reputation, and so the Caliph al-Mansur, who we've talked about was the second Abbasid Caliph, and really the founder of Baghdad and the real founder of the dynasty, commissioned him to write a history beginning with Adam and going up to the present time. So, nothing humble about this one. And it was entitled Al-Mubtada'a wa al-Ba'ath wa al-Mughazi. And that means literally the beginning the mission, meaning the spreading of Islam, and the conquests. The Caliph Mansur wanted him to document all of this. Now you may remember when we talked about Hadith a few episodes ago that this very same Caliph, Al-Mansur, was the one who ordered the early Hadith scholar, Malik ibn Anas, to create a definitive Hadith in law collection. So he wanted uh, Ibn Ishaq to do the same thing with history. I mean, he really wanted to get everything down in writing. And just incidentally, that same Malik Ibn Anas, the Hadith collector, was one critic who had a really big problem with the history that Ibn Ishaq wrote. He had a lot of problems with it. Among other things, he uh, questioned the validity of a lot of the reports that Ibn Ishaq used, and especially his reliance on the reports of early Christian and Jewish converts. But the fact that the Khalif would commission these men to write definitive works in their fields, despite their differences on sources, that speaks to the intellectual climate at the time. This was not a forced party-line kind of environment, like something we would see in the Cultural Revolution in China, where everyone had to write the, the party-line history. Ruler didn't put out his version of history and have everything else destroyed. All these books that were being produced, whether they were religious, law books, or histories, they were expected to research all the existing accounts, 
all the reports that had been passed down, comment on them, judge them, and evaluate them. And as we saw with Hadith, it wasn't a straight yes or no judgment. Reports were weighed on a number of criteria, and the results would then be listed for a reader. So a certain report could be considered strong in some regards, and it could be weak in others. It could be strong in the number of different reporters that it had, but weak in some of the links in the chain. And this was all presented to the reader, and you had to sort through them. So uh, the fact that they would differ in their evaluations of the sources is not a surprise. But the fact that the Khalif wanted all of this recorded so people could study it with all the different opinions, that really speaks to the kind of open climate they had. If you were to look at what survives from any of these books, and of course most of them were lost, what you'll see is many different reports on the same kind of events. Now, obviously, this was not something for casual reading, and of course the majority of citizens couldn't read, and the process of producing books was extremely expensive and time-consuming. So this is not like something you're going to pick up at your local bookstore. But these were resources that were studied by scholars and were debated in many of the intellectual gatherings they had down. So what the average person would actually get would be the result of this study. They'd get a ruling or a judgment on a particular issue. So we don't want to make it sound like every citizen is out there debating uh, one report of the Battle of Karbala versus another. But for the scholars, that's definitely what they were looking at. But there was no such idea of something as, say, like a, a World History 101 textbook that gave you all the history, this is what happened. Now, we're going to get to something closer to that in a few centuries, but what we're getting here is really a collection of reports that is meant to be sifted through and weighed. Now, when we consider we're talking about the 700s and 800s AD and compare that to what's happening in Europe, which is in the deep dark ages at that time, it's really a very different culture. To talk about some specifics, if you study even a little bit of Islamic history, one name you're going to come across a lot is a man called Ibn al-Nadim. Now that wasn't actually his name, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment, but the fact that we quote him so much says a lot about the ironies of history, really, and how you never know who's going to end up becoming important later on. And the reason is that Ibn al-Nadim didn't really come up with any great ideas of his own. He was not a theorist of, of history. He was basically a compiler. And his greatest work is known as the Fihrist, which means index, and that's exactly what we produce. Now, it's a, a bit funny because most books have a Fihrist in it. Just like the greatest of all Arabic history works is called the Muqaddamah of Ibn Khaldun, in which we're going to discuss that in much greater detail when his time comes along. But the word Muqaddamah literally means introduction, because that's what it was. It was an introduction to a massive encyclopedia. But again, most books also have a Muqaddamah in them. So anyway, this index that was produced was meant to be a list of all the works in circulation in Arabic and really a who's who of Abbasid society and Abbasid writers. Now, 
that might not have counted for much if most of those works hadn't been destroyed. Now, you've heard by now many times on this program what happened to the great libraries of the Abbasid Empire. I mean, most of the works were destroyed by the Mongols. Ibn Nadim's Fehrist was one that survived, at least in parts. And so now we know things like how many books Al-Jahiz wrote or how many Al-Farabi wrote and what they wrote on, largely because of this index of Ibn Nadim. I mean, imagine if an entire library is destroyed and the only thing that survives was the catalog. In any case, Ibn Nadim was a man of his time. Now, his name was actually Ibn Abi Yaqub Isaac Ibn Muhammad Ibn Isaac Al-Warak, and he was known as Al-Nadim. Now, that's a little bit funny because Al-Nadim is essentially a court companion, or in other words, you know, one of the guys in the entourage that socializes with a ruler. Uh, it's kind of like a buddy. And so, his name got shortened by someone to Ibn al-Nadim, which, I mean, essentially would mean the son of the party guy. That obviously was not his name, and I think if anyone had called him that, it would have been an insult. But the idea is he's famous today, and it's uh, somewhat a reflection of history that a guy named after the idea of sitting around with a ruler and talking about things with him and his entourage well into the night would become the documenter of who's who in society, well, Ibn al-Nadim was not a companion of the actual caliph. Because by this time, as we've discussed, the Abbasid caliphs had been reduced to basically figureheads. The real power lay with the local emirs, or the princes of various cities. We talked about Saif al-Dawla, who was one of those. And the emir of Baghdad, at this time, Adud al-Dawla, was one of the most powerful of all. And so it's believed that Ibn al-Nadim was one of the key figures of his social circle. But again, we don't know a lot because, remember, Ibn al-Nadim is writing not about himself, but what everybody else in Baghdad was doing at the time. As we discussed in that episode about Saif Adawla in Aleppo and his companions, the great Al-Farabi and Al-Mutanabi, despite the fracturing of this empire into multiple, essentially independent states, the sciences and the arts continued to flourish, and Adud Adawla was a great patron of the arts, and his majlis or his evening gatherings, featured some of the best talent in the Middle East, and it was for that audience that Ibn al-Nadim produced this extensive who's who and who wrote what document. Like if they had the New York Times back then, then the social section that you see with all its pictures of millionaires in tuxes attending fancy banquets and getting their picture taken, well, Ibn Nadim would be in all of those pictures. He would be sitting next to the governor and the movie star and the billionaire investor. If you were going to have a big wedding that you wanted to be the social event of the year and you wanted to know who you had to invite, Ibn Nadim was the guy to tell you. Now, he definitely didn't think he was writing for posterity, but strange things happen in history, and his work has become invaluable while much of the stuff he wrote about has been lost. Well, probably because of his social role, researchers didn't give him much regard as a scholar in his own right. But more recently, the methods of Ibn al-Nadim have begun to get attention as well. 
uh, later records tell us that he actually had a long education, studied under a number of very famous masters of poetry, theology, math, and sciences. And his actual name, which is Awarak, tells us that his profession and his father's profession was as a copier. So remember that the introduction of paper in the Abbasid period led to a huge increase in the production of written works compared to what they had before, but it still meant copying manuscripts out by hand. And so, I mean, we're talking about lots and lots of books that had to be copied, and so it was an extremely expensive process, an extremely time-consuming process, and the people who did it had to be very skilled. You had to be able to read what they wrote. So compared to the invention of the printing press, it is still a very time-consuming process. This is what Ibn Nadim at least started out doing. So this is why he had access to a lot of what was being written. Another thing we're told about him is that he was not quoted. Now what that means is he didn't teach or write his own ideas. He studied a lot, he was very educated, but nobody was out there quoting Ibn Nadim because he was basically a recorder of other people's stuff. Today he's being quoted, but again, for having recorded other people's stuff. Now, this picture shouldn't clash with our image of the socialite. It might when we look at those fancy pictures today of all the people at parties in their tuxedos, but this society very much valued education and scholarship, and although the parties could get rowdy and their poetry and song could get very raunchy, they also got into some pretty heavy discussions. So the fact that this very highly educated bibliophile was also the preferred party guy, that's not surprising. Well, the Fihrist itself runs over 2,000 pages in its modern English translation, but again, a handwritten version of this would have taken up a lot more space. So we know that the work was divided into 10 books, parts of which survive in different places. And the books were organized by chapters called Fen. Now, any Arabic student will know that the word Fen means art. And that's the way they're organized, by disciplines or arts. And it's worth taking a moment here to look at what those different arts were, and it gives you an idea of what the different intellectual disciplines were that they were talking about, and also how much space they devoted to each one. For example, Book 1 dealt with all types of religious scriptures, Christian, Jewish, and the Quran, and all the known languages that Ibn Nadim knew about at his time. Book 2 is entirely about Arabic grammar. Book 3 is about history and genealogy, which were very closely re related. Book 4 is about poetry. 5 is theology. 6 is law. 7 is Greek science, almost all the Greek sciences. Eight was entertainment literature, folk stories, fables, legends, and so forth. Nine was all about other religions, and ten was alchemy. That's the one science that's off by itself. So that gives us uh, an idea of the relative weight of these different subjects. Because remember, each one of these books is essentially like a bibliography. It's like a catalog of written works. So they're roughly equal in size. So we can see that, for example, the study of Arabic grammar, a list of books about Arabic grammar, occupies about as much space as books on the law. 
I mean, that's definitely not the case today. When we think of law libraries, like you always see in the movies in a lawyer's office, compared to how many books are written about grammar. Many of these are subjects that we would consider subsets of Islam. I mean, there's a whole section on theology and Islamic law and the scriptures, and even Arabic grammar is really heavily tied up in the study of the Quran. Poetry is the dominant entertainment form, so it's a whole book onto itself. And as much as we've talked about the importance of the Greek sciences, they all go into one book, except for alchemy, which gets its own separate book. So that gives you an idea of the balance. So we don't want to paint the picture that it was all science. That's only about a tenth of this entire corpus. Now, of course, many people are writing in several of these different areas. One reason that theology gets a very large section is that Ibn al-Nadim was a mutazilite, which we have talked a lot about, that rational school of theology, and so therefore he would have been very interested in them. And for him, that was just as important as Islamic law. Well, it's from this index that we get an idea of how many works have been lost, and how for almost every scholar that we've talked about, the vast majority of their works have been lost. <laughs> Another of the most commonly cited people in Islamic history is Abu Jafar At-Tabari, and you'll see his name a lot. It's written as El-Tabari, but in Arabic the Al is not pronounced. Okay? Uh, he is best known as one of the first great Islamic historians, although he produced hundreds of books on a lot of subjects. But there are actually many more, dozens during his time and before his time, and certainly a proliferation afterwards. But he is one of the most important and most prolific, and he's so great today that modern historians um, almost always cite At-Tabari whenever they're talking about any events during the Abbasid period. You'll often see his name cited in the biographies of the great Khalifs, for example. Now, his greatest work is a 38-volume history of the world from the creation of the world until his time, which was the 8th century. And the English version of this, the English translation, is found in about a thousand libraries of the world today. So it's still something that's uh, very commonly used. Well, as we've said about everybody, his background tells us a lot about the time in which he lived. Okay, as his name suggests, At-Tabari was from Tabaristan, which is in northern Persia, the part of Iran that is right along the Caspian Sea. And his family was fairly well-off landowners, so they could afford to hire a tutor for him, but it was still in a fairly remote region. So once he progressed pretty well in his studies, he had to move on and study in a, in a large city. But they had the money to do that. Well, the first subject that he learned, like most anyone else, would be to memorize the Quran. And he is said to have done this by age six. He then became a prayer leader by age seven. Now, this may seem a bit strange to us, but remember the Sunni concept 
was that the most knowledgeable person would lead the congregation, unlike the Shia who believed in the imams having a special spiritual gift. And At-Tabari, who was a child prodigy, was definitely the most knowledgeable. Now, it's questionable, of course, how much he could really understand about what he was reciting, but that really wasn't the point. I mean, much of what they did in the prayers was just to repeat. Now, if this sounds a little bit strange to you, just by the way, note that this style of education would be heavily mocked in the early 20th century. And in fact, one of the greatest modern Arabic writers and educational reformers, Taha Hussein in Egypt, wrote a very famous autobiography uh, called The Days. And he talks about when the same thing happened to him. When he was nine years old in his village, he was made the prayer leader because he had memorized the Quran. And he makes it very clear in this book that he had no idea what he was talking about when he was out there uh, leading the public and he had the title of a sheikh. And this was proof to him that the educational system needed to be reformed. But anyway, Al-Tabari did not stop with just memorization. Yeah, he got that far, but he would go on. And so anyway, it became clear that Tabaristan did not have adequate facilities for a prodigy like him, so they sent him to Syria to study. He would then go on to study in Egypt, spent some time in Medina, but of course, he ended up in Baghdad. And although he is known as a historian, at the time, Al-Tabari really wanted to be a great Islamic jurist, and he was to an extent. Now the irony is, he went to Baghdad for the purpose of studying under Ibn Hanbal, who we have discussed before as the most conservative traditionalist and really the founder of the Hanbali school of Islamic law, and he was the one who was persecuted by al-Ma'mun's inquisition. But At-Tabari would become one of the biggest opponents and critics of Ibn Hanbal, and in fact, the Hanbalis would frequently throw rocks at his house to the extent that the Caliph had to post guards on his house. And when Atabari died, they had to bury him in secret for fear that the Hanbalis would dig up his grave. Well, Atabari's criticism of Ibn Hanbal, which was voiced by a lot of people and even today still is, is that Ibn Hanbal was basically a compiler and collector of hadith and not really a legal scholar. I mean, it's questionable whether Ibn Hanbal would have even claimed that he was. But Atabari was first and foremost a legal scholar, and everything else he did was secondary to that. So the conflict with the Hanbalis is not of a guy who's a secular historian against a religious conservative, but a two people who are really trying to do Islamic law and have a different version of what hadith to collect and how to evaluate them. Well, despite his strong opposition to the Hanbalis, Atabari's methods might seem close to theirs by our standards. Of course, Hanbali Islam is known for its strict application of hadith. Atabari's history often reads like a hadith collection. He focuses mostly on anecdotes which have been handed down and studying the links of transmission in those. And in some cases, he gives many different accounts of a story. And he includes all the ones that he considers valid. Uh, something as simple as the age of the Imam Hussein when he was killed at Karbala gets two pages of different reports about what age he was. 
Now, of course, he's not the only one. This is the way history was studied. As we've said, history was mostly collections of these different reports. And it's a very blurry line between studying world history to writing official chronicles or studying Hadith. But Al-Tabari makes a point of stressing that he reports exactly what came down to him without altering it. Well, this is one of the things that makes his books kind of hard to read because he does report them exactly the way they came down to him and then the reader has to try and sort this out. So when you read At-Tabari, it may sound more like a recorder of transmitted stories than what we think of as a modern historian. But remember, at this point, history wasn't really a separate discipline from the recording of Hadith. But what's really striking about this approach is, as hard as it is to read, they're really striving for a kind of objective analysis. Rather than pushing a single narrative, one that supports the party line, our sect is correct, for example, he's essentially doing research and publishing the results of that research and letting the reader judge. Now, of course, the reports that he chooses to include and which he discards are shaped by his views. And we definitely shouldn't think that this is a time of complete freedom of speech where you're allowed to say whatever you want. We've already talked about the Inquisition under Al-Ma'mun, where people who did not agree with his Mutazilite view on the createdness of the Quran were locked up and even tortured, such as Ibn Hanbal. So definitely this is an autocracy, and the Khalif is a monarch who can rule, and when he says this is the official version of something, then that is the version that is accepted, and but we do get an idea that the Khalif himself does want to explore the reports that are out there and make a judgment. So we have to put this in perspective. This is not a complete sense of academic freedom, but we do get a definite sense here, which is quite different than what we see in Christian Europe at the time, that it's the reader, the student, is expected to make a reasoned judgment based on the sources available. So we take something very controversial, like the conflicts between the Sunni and Shia. We get a number of different conflicting versions of events that are reported. Uh, We talk about the Battle of Karbala, for example. And this is the same with the way Hadith was studied. So remember, we weren't just given a list of these are all the correct and accepted Hadith. We were given the reports and told their strengths and weaknesses. So a stereotypical view as Islam being very dogmatic and forcing its views is not backed by history, at least at this point in time. Well, why was he writing this? The overall purpose of his history was to examine how different rulers handled what he called the covenant that God made with them to rule his people. Well, of course, this sounds familiar to anyone who's read the Old Testament, because that's basically what they're talking about throughout, how God makes a covenant with his people, with a ruler, they stay faithful for a while, the rulers start deviating, they start sinning, and eventually they lose favor with God, there's much disaster and suffering, and it's a cycle. And Atabari begins with the creation. He goes through these biblical figures and goes right up until his present time where they have a lot more other historical documents. Now, just because he presents stories supposedly exactly the way he heard them 
doesn't mean there isn't a lot of analysis and judgment in there. In fact, many of these accounts are people giving their opinions and judgments about what's going on. And we see many of the sections of his books with titles beginning with why. Why Muawiyah appointed Yazid as his successor? Why Hussein decided to go to Karbala? For example, he has a section entitled, The Account of the Events That Happen When God Wished to Take Away from the People of Persia, Rule Over the Persia, and the Arabs, which describes how the Sassanid Persians lost God's favor and the Arabs conquered them. So it is definitely a religious-type history, but it's talking about why different rulers failed and why they succeeded. Through At-Tabari, we get a definite sense of the Abbasids' place in history. And they definitely believe that they were the inheritors of all that went before them. And this is why they wanted to chronicle, essentially, a world history, as, as much as they knew of world history, right up from the creation to the present. And it does have a religious narrative, but there is a discussion of how previous rulers went wrong. And Muslim rulers are included in this. Well, as you might expect, for a history being written for the Abbasids, a chief target is going to be the Umayyads and why they lost the favor of God and why they lost the Caliphate. But again, rather as seeing everything as black and white, as good and evil, as painting the non-Muslims as pagans, there is an attempt to really look at what actual rulers did and whether it was wise or not. And this fits with the Muslim attitude we've talked about before towards other civilizations and particular earlier civilizations, even pagan civilizations. There's definitely a sense that the Muslim empire, and as it stands at this time, the Abbasid Caliphate, is the inheritor of everything that has gone on before, and that what has been accomplished before has been through the blessings of God. So the Greek, the Hindu, the Christian, and Jewish science and arts and philosophies, they're not seen as being alien or bad, but that they have now become our responsibility. The current Muslim rulers could blow it. They could go wrong, and they could lose power to someone else easily. Well, the study of history is going to get its biggest boost, really, in the 14th century with Ibn Khaldun, who is remembered as the greatest Muslim historian. And he's going to develop what it really looks like a truly objective study of history. I mean, one that is studied today by purely secular historians for its value. But here at this time, four centuries earlier, we're still getting world history that is able to blend these religious views with a pretty objective study of politics and organizational effectiveness. Now, Islam is always going to have a very keen sense of its position in history, and that continues to this day. study of why some empires, and particularly Muslim empires, flourished and did very well, and why others collapsed and lost to outside invaders is a subject that is still hotly debated today and studied with great scrutiny, as you could understand why. 
But we can't really intelligently talk about the place of Islam in our world today and its contributions without looking at its history and its views of history and what it thought about history. And so we see that was a very active process going on and it will continue to go on through the centuries and right up until the present, even though some may resist that very strongly. So thank you very much again for your kind attention. Thank you for your comments, and I hope to see you again in the future when we talk more about this great empire. Thanks again. Shukran jazilan wa ma salama. Mm-hmm.